As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone loves a good plot twist. It's that moment in the story where some unexpected event or revelation occurs that turns everything you thought you knew up until that point on its head. Think about how you felt that first moment when you found out Bruce Willis was a ghost the entire time, or Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. In historical terms, it can be argued that the ancient Greeks invented the plot twist. In Sophocles' drama, Oedipus Rex, throughout most of the play, Oedipus attempts to avoid fulfilling a prophecy that said he would kill his father and marry his mother, only to learn, surprise, that the man he kills, Laius, is his real father and the woman he marries, Jocasta, is his mother. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is The Twilight Zone. I grew up watching reruns of the old black and white series, and I can remember so many times being completely blown away by many of the twist endings. Rod Serling, the show's host and creator, was a master at subverting the viewer's expectations. From Burgess Meredith breaking his glasses, to the truth that was revealed when the woman had her plastic surgery bandages removed, to that time William Shatner spotted something strange on the wing of the plane. It also turns out there are some very real historical moments with their own shocking twist to them. And some of these bizarre turns of events can be every bit as surprising as any episode of The Twilight Zone ever was. Take the story of Mithridates VI, for example. Mithridates was the ruler of the Kingdom of Pontus in northern Anatolia from 120 to 63 BCE. And during that time, he became one of the biggest thorns in the side of the Roman Empire. He was an ambitious and ruthless ruler who sought to conquer vast swaths of land throughout Asia Minor and the Black Sea region. According to Plutarch, back in 88 BCE, Mithridates orchestrated the mass killing of somewhere around 150,000 Roman and Italian combatants in a single day. But throughout his reign, Mithridates realized that being so reviled as well as being the man in charge of such a vast kingdom also put a huge target on his back. He rightfully worried there were members of his own royal court plotting against him, which meant he had to be constantly vigilant against any and all assassination attempts. So in order to be able to fight off any assassins, he exercised constantly to build his strength and dexterity with a sword. He also dabbled in toxicology in order to gain the upper hand against anyone who might wish to poison him. Throughout his reign, Mithridates studied numerous poisons, often using prisoners as guinea pigs. He then used that knowledge to determine the proper doses of each poison he would need to ingest in order to build up a tolerance without actually killing himself. Even today, this process is called Mithriditism, or Mithridization. In the meantime, the Romans grew increasingly hostile toward Mithridates and eventually managed to overthrow his kingdom. 
But after the Romans broke through the gates to his kingdom, Mithridates decided he wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of parading him around as their prisoner. Instead, he chose to commit suicide. As the Roman soldiers closed in on him in his bedchambers, he decided the easiest way to do this was to poison himself. The problem was it didn't work. He kept trying to poison after poison, downing large quantities of what should have been fatal elixirs. Only none of them did the deed. His exact end is disputed in the history books. Some versions claim Mithridates got a friend to kill him with a sword, while others say either an angry mob or some Roman soldiers finally got their hands on him. Either way, in the end, the king did finally get his wish to die. In this episode, I want to tell you about another story known as the Campton Wonder, dating back to medieval England more than 350 years ago. This is a tale that has all the trappings of a great Twilight Zone. A colorful cast of characters, a brutal murder, witches, pirates, and most importantly, one heck of a twist ending. I'm Nate Hale, and you are traveling through another dimension. And this is The Conspirators. There's a quaint little town in southwestern England called Chipping Campton. Back in 1660, the town was largely comprised of a single street lined with stone buildings that drew its primary construction material from quarries in the Cotswold Hills. During the mid-1600s, the town's largest property was a stately country manor known as Campton House. Around the same time, there was a major civil war going on that threatened the monarchy. So it came to be that back in 1645, the manor was occupied by royalist troops known as Cavaliers. These soldiers spent five months living there and fortifying the manor against their foes, followers of the Puritan commander Oliver Cromwell, who became known as the Roundheads. Eventually, the fighting grew so fierce, things got to the point where in order to keep the Roundheads at bay, the Cavaliers set Campton House on fire. Before and even after the Great Fire, Campton House was owned by a noble lady named Lady Julian Nicole, also known as the Viscountess Campton. Campton House was not her primary residence. She spent most of her time living at her family estate in Rutland. The fire destroyed many of the structures on the estate. But after the flames died out, the Viscountess had some of the outbuildings that remained standing, mostly stables and banquet halls, turned into residences for herself as well as the steward of her estate, a man named William Harrison. And it is he who would become the central figure in the mystery yet to come. It was William Harrison's duty to remain living on the estate to collect the rent for the Viscountess. He had done so for decades, and by the year 1660, William Harrison was 70 years old. But nonetheless, Harrison still regularly made the rounds on foot to collect the rent for his lady. That is until one day when he walked out the door and didn't return. It's William Harrison's vanishing that would trigger a series of events so strange that even to this day they're referred to as the Campton Wonder. On Thursday, August 16th, William Harrison left his home among the remains of the burned-out estate, making the two-mile journey on foot to Charrington to begin his collection. Harrison's wife expected him home before dark, as he'd always done so before. So naturally, when the sun began to set, Harrison's wife grew worried, 
Keep in mind, as quaint and idyllic as the town of Chipping Campton seemed on the surface, there actually had been an uptick in local crime back then. Although much of that criminal activity actually centered around the burned-out remains of Campton House. Nearly a year earlier after Mr. and Mrs. Harrison attended a lecture at their church, they returned home to find a ladder leaning against their banquet hall residence, leading up to a second-story window. The window had bars on it, but they had been broken out. Inside, they found the blades of a plow, which appeared to be the tool used to bust out the bars from the wall they were set in. The thief, or thieves, got away with 140 pounds and was never caught. One of the other central figures in this story is John Perry, a young man in his 20s who worked the grounds under the Harrison's supervision. Just a few weeks before William Harrison mysteriously vanished, John Perry claimed to have been attacked in the garden by two assailants dressed all in white. These attackers threatened the young man with swords, and he was forced to defend himself with the only weapon he had available to him, a pitchfork. After the attack, Perry told the Harrisons about what had occurred and how he'd narrowly escaped with his life, showing them the cuts on this pitchfork from where he'd parried away the swords. On the day William Harrison went missing, Mrs. Harrison ordered John Perry to go out looking for her husband. She was afraid her hubby might have run into the very same attackers in white that had tried to do her young groundskeeper harm. As the sun dipped below the horizon, Mrs. Harrison also lit a lamp and set it in the window in the hope that William might follow the light home. But as the night wore on, neither William Harrison nor John Perry returned. The following day, William Harrison's son went out looking for himself. On the road to Charrington, he discovered John Perry walking alone. Perry informed him that he had gone all the way to Charrington and asked around, but William Harrison was not there. The two men then went off looking for Harrison together. They traveled to Ebrington and questioned everyone they encountered along the way. Eventually, they ran into a woman who said she found a man's hat, comb, and collar on the road between Ebrington and Chipping Campton. When Perry and Harrison's son got a look at these items, they instantly recognized them as belonging to William Harrison. What was even more disturbing, though, was that some of these items were damaged and looked as if they might have been cut with some sort of blade. On top of that, the collar bore a distinctive spot of blood. The woman led them to the location where she had discovered these items, but a search of the surrounding woods yielded no further clues towards the location of William Harrison. It didn't take long for Harrison's son to begin to suspect this apparent crime. It might have been perpetrated by someone particularly close to home, namely John Perry. Harrison's son thought it was especially suspicious how Perry had gone out searching for his father all night and had nothing to show for it. He speculated that perhaps Perry had located his father after all and there in the dark decided to murder the elderly man and steal the rent money he'd collected. Perry was from a poor family, so Harrison's son thought greed would have been a powerful motive to murder his father. Even before this incident, there were some of the townsfolk who regarded the Perry family with suspicion. Perry's mother Joan had been widowed for many years, and there were some rumors that she might have actually been a witch. Even a year earlier, when the Harrisons' home had been burgled, there were some who suspected John Perry. After all, he would have known when his masters weren't home, and possibly could have known where they kept their money hidden as well. But those were just rumors, and no evidence to prove this had ever come to light. Even Perry's story of two mysterious attackers from a few weeks earlier was looking more and more suspicious as well. 
Despite him showing his masters how his pitchfork had sustained damage during the attempted robbery, Perry himself had walked away without a scratch on him. By the following day, Harrison's son had relayed his suspicions to a local magistrate, Sir Thomas Overbury. It's actually through letters written by Overbury later on where we get a lot of the details of this story. Perry answered all the magistrate's questions, explaining his whereabouts from the moment he went out looking for William Harrison onward. He said that throughout the evening he headed toward Charrington before turning back because of how dark it was becoming. He said that at one point he encountered a man named William Reed, who followed him back to Campton House before heading on his way. Perry didn't seem to have a clear explanation as to why, if he made his way back to Campton House, he didn't report back to Mrs. Harrison, nor why he didn't do anything else that seemed logical like trying to get his master's horse and go out searching some more. Perry also claimed to have met another man that evening named John Pierce, whom he spent some time with. He said that he and Pierce went walking through a field, although, once again, Perry was vague as to why they were actually doing this. After he and Pierce parted ways, Perry said he went to the hen house and laid his head down to rest for an hour. He then admitted that he was afraid of the dark and didn't want to venture out alone again. But when he heard the church bell striking midnight, it woke him from his sleep, so he got up and headed back out on the road again to continue his search. Sir Thomas Overbury questioned Perry's peculiar timing and how he seemed to content to lay down and go to sleep until suddenly deciding the middle of the night would be the ideal time to go out looking for William Harrison once again. John Perry claimed that by the time he woke up, there was a bright moon in the sky, providing enough illumination to see where he was going. But, as time wore on, this didn't last. As it grew later, a dense mist began to form, making it impossible to see where he was going. Harry said he decided to hunker down and sleep under a hedge along the road. By the time dawn finally broke, Perry was back on his feet and wandering towards Charingworth. It was there that he learned that his master had actually only collected 23 pounds from a single tenant before heading in the direction of home. It was after this that Perry said he ran into his master's son and the two men carried on the search together. The magistrate remained highly suspicious of John Perry's account. The problem was he had plenty of other witnesses who backed up his version of events, including William Reed, John Pierce, and the tenants he'd stopped and spoken to. Still, it was the odd gaps in Perry's testimony and the vague answers he sometimes gave that fueled suspicions. Perry couldn't quite explain his thought processes during some of the long gaps where he was just sort of wandering around. Nor why he kept worrying that he'd get lost himself considering he'd lived in the area his entire life. As a result, Sir Thomas Overbury ordered that Perry be held as a prisoner and over the following week he was questioned further. Now, we don't know exactly what happened after that. There is no historical record describing how well or how badly John Perry was treated during his incarceration. There's no way of knowing for certain whether anyone tried to beat a confession out of the man, or if he was treated with respect. What is known is that during the week he was held in jail, John Perry changed his story several times. During his incarceration, Perry offered numerous theories of his own as to what had happened to William Harrison. At times he speculated perhaps some other servant of some other family robbed and murdered the old man. Or perhaps it was some other murderous local handyman that might have killed him. At one point he told investigators they could find Harrison's body under a pile of beans. But no sign of the old man's remains were found. 
After several days in jail, John Perry finally came out and told his captors he would confess to what really happened. He admitted that, yes, he had been involved in the plot to rob and murder William Harrison. Not only that, but his brother Richard and his mother were the masterminds behind the crime. Perry told the authorities that he was driven to commit such a heinous act because his family was so poverty-stricken. His brother Richard had become the man of the house after their father died, and so it fell to him to provide for his mother and all her children. According to John, his brother Richard and his mother Joan asked him to help them rob William Harrison. He said that the burglary a year earlier had actually been committed by Richard, who stole the money and buried it nearby. Unfortunately, Richard forgot where he buried the money, and so afterwards Richard and his mother kept badgering him to help rob the old man again. For the longest time, John kept refusing, but eventually they wore him down and he gave in. But he knew he'd fall under suspicion unless he came up with a good story first. So that's when he concocted the tale about the two swordsmen dressed all in white who attacked him in the garden. According to John Perry, it was just a lucky coincidence the day William Harrison went out collecting the rents and was late coming home. When Mrs. Harrison sent John Perry out looking for his master, his brother Richard realized this could be the perfect opportunity to rob the old man. So he joined John in his quest and eventually the two of them found him. At first they spotted someone entering a plot of land called the Coingree, which was also owned by Lady Campton. It was dark so they couldn't really tell for certain if it was Harrison. But whoever this was had a key to the gate. John knew this was a shortcut back to the Harrison's home, so he guessed it must be Harrison after all. John didn't want to be spotted by his master in case things went wrong, so he sent Richard after the man. And by the time he finally caught up, he discovered Richard and his mother standing over the still-living William Harrison as he cowered in fear from them. He spotted John and pleaded with him to help him, but according to John, that was the moment when Richard pounced on the man and strangled him to death. Then he took the purse containing the elderly man's rent money and tossed it in his mother's lap. Now, the three of them still had Harrison's body to contend with. John suggested Richard and his mother drag the remains off to a pit near a mill toward the back of the garden, while he stood at lookout by the gates. It was he who had taken William Harrison's hat, comb, and collar and cut them up before dumping them alongside the road in order to throw people off. Now, if you think this confession sounds a little odd, that's because there are multiple things about it that don't add up. For one thing, we're supposed to believe this entire murder plot just coincidentally happened only after Mrs. Harrison inadvertently set things in motion by tasking the one person with finding her husband, who just so happened to be plotting against him. On top of that, there were actually witnesses from the village who John Perry admitted he spoke to, who gave their own testimony that seems to directly contradict the man's confession. Although the story told by John Pierce makes sense from a certain perspective that the two men bumped into each other at the gate, and that Perry, acting as lookout, led the two of them away into a field while his mother Joan and brother Richard disposed of the body. But the testimony given by John Pierce directly contradicts some of the facts in John Perry's confession. According to Pierce, he and Perry initially met a short distance away from Campton House on the highway to Charingworth. Then the two of them walked back together. But if this is true, then the story Perry told about walking back with his brother Richard can't be true, since Reed says Richard wasn't there. When police went and arrested Richard Perry and his mother, Richard angrily denied all his brother's accusations. On top of that, when the authorities went and dragged the pit behind the garden and searched the grounds nearby, the body of William Harrison was never found. Even with no body and no corroborating evidence, John Perry's confession was considered 
strong enough to hold the three of them in custody while the investigation continued. At one point, while the three suspects were being marched from the examination by the Justice of the Peace to their jail cells, a balled-up wad of what's known as Inkle fell out of Richard's pocket. Inkle is a narrow woven band of fabric. Richard claimed it was just a piece of lace that his wife used to tie up her hair. But his brother John immediately said that he recognized it for what it really was, the murder weapon. John claimed the strip of fabric was what Richard had used as a garrote to strangle William Harrison. It didn't help their case at all the following day when the three prisoners were being led from their cells to attend a church service, when it said that as they passed Richard's house, his children ran out to greet him. It was said that as the children drew near, several townspeople saw that both children suffered sudden nosebleeds. This was taken as further evidence that Mother Joan Perry really was a witch as she'd long been suspected. Being a witch, it was then decided that she had cast a spell over both her sons, causing them to commit such a heinous act. Even before the trial ever began, Parliament had issued an order known as an Act of Free and General Pardon, Indemnity, and Oblivion, which granted a general pardon for any crime committed during the Civil War, and even into the Restoration period after. There were only a few heinous crimes not covered under this get-out-of-jail-free card, including murder, buggery, rape, bestiality, piracy, and witchcraft. By the time the Perrys were brought before a judge that September, he refused to hear the charge of murder, especially since there was no body ever found. The prosecutors tried to charge the Perrys with the lesser offense of burglary, only the act of oblivion still applied as well. This left the courts in a bind. The authorities pressed the Perrys to spare themselves in the courts all the time and expense of a lengthy trial by pleading guilty, after which they would immediately be pardoned. Perhaps the Perrys didn't realize they pretty much already had their freedom set before them even without pleading guilty. Or perhaps they were coerced into pleading guilty through harsher means. Nonetheless, they did plead guilty. But instead of being instantly released as they were told they would be, they remained in jail. During this time, for whatever reason, John Perry kept insisting his family was guilty of William Harrison's murder. Then on top of that, he began accusing his mother and brother of trying to poison him while he was in custody to shut him up. The following spring, a different judge decided that the three defendants could indeed be charged with murder, body or nobody. Then, practically as soon as he himself was charged with murder, John Perry recanted his entire confession. Now he began claiming to have been suffering a bout of temporary madness. But this new judge was out for blood. He saw the Perrys as wicked murderers and because they were clearly under the spell of an evil witch, better known as their mother, Joan Perry, then any attempt to recant their confessions could be dismissed because it was obviously the voice of the devil speaking through them. He quickly found the Perrys guilty and sentenced them to hang. A few days later, the defendants were led to a hastily erected gallows that was constructed on Broadway Hill in Gloucestershire. Joan Perry was hanged first. It was widely believed that as soon as she was dead, the spell she had cast over her two sons would be broken, and the two men would be free to give their real confessions. But that's not what happened. After their mother was dead, John and Richard continued to plead their innocence. Richard was led to the hangman's noose next. All throughout his final moments, he begged his brother to give some last-minute confession that might exonerate him. But John angrily taunted the crowd, telling them they'd never get the satisfaction they were looking for. After watching his brother hang, he climbed the gallows and shouted at the screaming mob that even though he didn't know anything about his master's disappearance, 
One day the truth would be revealed. After the rope snapped his neck, they left John Perry's body hanging there until it rotted away. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For a long time, the citizens of Chipping Campton believed that justice had been done. Three evil murderers, including a suspected witch, who had lived in their midst, had been executed. And the village was safe once again. That is until two years after the Perry's executions, when a surprising individual suddenly appeared in the village, throwing everything everyone believed into turmoil. It was William Harrison, the man whom everyone had long since presumed had been murdered by the Perrys. The fact that three people had been executed for his murder caused a major uproar. Harrison was thoroughly interrogated as to where he was this entire time everyone thought he was dead. He wrote a letter detailing his exploits over the previous two years. Harrison claimed that he'd been walking late along the road near Ebrington after his trip to Charrington to collect the rent, when a horseman rode up on him so fast and with such obviously malicious intent that he actually struck the horse in the nose. The rider slashed at Harrison with a sword. This was the moment when his hat and collar had been knocked off and sustained damage. Harrison tried to defend himself, but the highwayman then stabbed him in the side. Then two more robbers appeared from behind him on horseback and one of them stabbed him in the thigh. The three robbers dragged him into the bushes. Harrison thought at first the men were simply going to take the 23 pounds he'd collected and leave him to bleed out. But instead they wrapped a cloak around him and sat him on a horse behind one of the riders. They manacled his hands around the waist of one of the riders and rode away with him. They stopped at a haystack along their route and tossed him into it, finally taking his purse full of money off him. But then an hour later, the men hauled him back out of the haystack and shackled him to the horse as they had before. They stuffed all their stolen money on him, weighing him down. They then rode to a lonely cottage where a woman told the robbers the old man was at death's door. But after a night lying on a cot and given some warm broth, Harrison said his health began to improve. According to Harrison's story, the men kept dragging him from one house to another until they finally reached the port of Deal in Kent more than 250 kilometers away from Chipping Campton. Harrison said he overheard his captors arguing with a man named Renshaw over a matter of seven pounds, as well as what to do with him. Harrison said he overheard Renshaw express his belief that he would die before they ever managed to get him on board the boat they planned on taking him on board. Nonetheless, Harrison did remain alive and for six weeks was forced to work aboard the slave ship. During their voyage, the ship Harrison was held captive on encountered a pair of Turkish ships, and a short battle ensued, after which Harrison and some of the other slaves on board were crammed into the dark hold of one of the Turkish vessels. Harrison didn't know how long they were held in the dark, cramped hold of the ship, but when they finally were let out into the sun, they were led on a two-day journey to a prison where they were held for four more days. Before some slave traders came to look them over and determine how much they'd be worth for sale, Harrison and the other captives were forced to describe their individual skills in order to prove their worth. Harrison was purchased by a physician from Smyrna, 
who was at least 17 years older than he was. The physician took him to his home and put him to work in his distillery. This very elderly doctor had lived in England for a period in his youth, and although he did occasionally abuse Harrison, he took a shine to him and even gave him a silver bowl to drink from. After his master died, this gave Harrison the freedom he'd so longed for. He used the silver bowl as payment to make his way to Spain where he encountered some kindly English sailors who brought him back to the shores of Dover. From there, William Harrison made his way back to Chipping Campton. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. And quite frankly, very little of it makes sense. Why on earth would three highwaymen decide to not only capture the man they robbed of only 23 pounds, but card him all over England until finally selling him into slavery? You really have to wonder just how much value there would be in a 70-year-old wounded man on board a slave ship. Harrison's entire story of being sold into slavery along with the eventual escape back to England sounds like the stuff of bad fiction. But if William Harrison made the whole thing up, as many people strongly suspect he did, then what exactly was he doing during the true years he went missing? Even going so far as to allow three people to be hanged for his murder? Could he simply have abandoned his family and later had a change of heart? It's difficult to believe this either. Over the years, the Harrisons had built up a substantial fortune of their own, yet during the time he went missing, William Harrison evidently never attempted to use any of the money he earned. It remains one of the biggest mysteries that Campton wonder just where William Harrison was during those two years and what he was really doing. That is, unless his story of pirates and being sold into slavery is actually true. There is one additional rumor from history that claims that after Mrs. Harrison's death, a letter was found among her possessions that had been written by her husband while the Perrys were on trial. Although the contents of this letter aren't known, this would still mean that Whatever secret John kept, his wife decided to keep it to herself, the fact that he was still alive, and actually allowed three innocent people to be executed for his murder. One possible explanation is that perhaps the old man who returned to Chipping Campton wasn't actually William Harrison after all, but rather an imposter hoping to cash in on the situation. At the same time, you would expect people who knew Harrison, especially his own family, to recognize him. One related story goes that perhaps Harrison's son had actually masterminded a plot to murder his father and take control of Lady Campton's lands for himself. In which case, perhaps the man who returned claiming to be his father was actually a hired imposter. The story of the Campton wonder would also lead to another long-standing misconception. For many years there existed a false belief among a lot of people that the events in Chipping Campton created a change in English law, where if no body was found, you could not be charged with murder. This is, of course, absolutely not true, and in fact would create quite an incentive for a motivated killer to dispose of the body. The law actually states that a person can be charged with murder even if no body is found, as long as an overwhelming body of evidence is present to prove the murder occurred. One further unsubstantiated story claims that after the man claiming to be William Harrison returned, his wife hung herself, perhaps out of guilt for being complicit in her real husband's murder. But this, like a lot of details of what happened after Harrison's return, are a lot more difficult to determine, if they ever really occurred or not. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Dave and Carlin for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive bonus mini-episodes. 
Another great way you can help support the podcast is to subscribe and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and we're still on Twitter, which is apparently still a thing at the time of this recording. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. I hope everyone had a great holiday, and I'm looking forward to sharing even more strange stories with you for the new year.